And what he's doing is he's preaching to a room full of people who couldn't wait to hear him talk because he's the great respected Saul, member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. And he shocks them all with this revelation that that doesn't matter. What matters is... Last week, we did talk from 2 Kings, and we talked about the story of King Josiah. And that's important to understand because if we juxtapose last week to this week in the whole of Scripture, I think you're going to see something pretty cool. Now, last week in the story of Josiah, what we found is that Josiah is he's an eight-year-old kid when he becomes king, and then at 26, 18 years into his reign, he starts wanting to do things a little bit better. He's cleaning up the temple. And as they're cleaning up the temple, one of his servants finds the books of the law in the temple, reads it, and says the king needs to see this, and reads the books of the law to him. Here's the sad part. The books of the law, the Torah, the books of Moses, Scripture, was hiding in the temple. In the place of worship, the place where you go to worship God, Scripture was hiding. You couldn't find it. But what you could find at the temple at that time were literal prostitutes to worship a false god in God's temple rather than the Scripture that was hidden within the temple. The point of that is, just because you go to a place that's labeled church doesn't mean truth is found there. And that was exactly what was happening in Israel at that time. The truth of God was suppressed and the culture of man was highlighted at the temple. Now, if you see parallels in the American church today, so do I. But tonight, we're dealing with the exact opposite. The church is now given an opportunity to spread the gospel. Jesus has resurrected. He's given his disciples and a goal. They're now apostles, setting up the church and moving the church. And what we see tonight is we're dealing with the first missionary journey of Paul. And so unlike what happened last week, where the, the words of God were getting suppressed and hidden, Paul actually wants to take them outside. And he wants to spread the word of God throughout the whole Roman Empire, and he starts with his first missionary journey. And so it's the exact opposite. No suppressing truth, but getting it out there in the face of opposition, in the face of the Roman culture that wanted to kill them because they preach the resurrection. So this is what we see tonight. Now we're calling this, this message tonight, Hunger for Revival. And it made me think of a few things to help us get into understanding what we're talking about. Now I have a friend, uh, his name is Brian, and I was the best man in his wedding. Now it's not the Brian who's gonna be speaking next week, whom I was also the best man in his wedding. 
So don't get them confused. Listen, different Brian, he was in the military and uh, he was in the Air Force and he was once stationed in Nevada. I remember talking to him when he came home for a break uh, and he asked, this is when he asked me to be the best man in his wedding. And he came home on a break from being in Nevada. And one of the conversations we had was when he was out there, one of the things that everyone struggled with on base is that the way that the heat works out there is it's dry heat, so you don't sweat. So you get dehydrated and you have no idea that you're thirsty. No idea. Because you're not sweating, you don't know that you need to be replenished. And it's that lack of understanding, of not knowing, that causes problems. I've witnessed this firsthand because, as you know, when Juliet's not pregnant, she likes to be a marathon runner. And so I often go to her races and I watch, I watch her run. And as I'm sitting out there, after I've seen her a couple times, I go to the finish line and I wait. And what I happen to see out there all the time is scary. I actually see people wave off water and help because they think they're fine, but everyone else can see how they're running. And they don't know that they're dehydrated. And as their knees get higher and they're working harder, they're getting a little bit delirious in their head because they don't know the thing they need to save them is water. They don't know that they're thirsty. And then I watch them collapse. And I have seen multiple ambulance crews come and drag someone out at the 25th mile when they've got one mile left to go. And they could have made it if they would have just gotten some electrolytes into their body and some water because they didn't know they were thirsty. They were thirsty and they didn't know it. Now I myself, as you might be able to tell, am not a marathon runner. So this thirst thing isn't something I quite understand, but being hungry, that I understand. So today is hungry for revival, not thirsty for revival. And to give you an example, uh, now I didn't grow up very affluent. So there's a lot of things I didn't experience growing up. Now one of those things happens to be my favorite food on the entire planet, which is fresh pineapple. I was in my mid-20s the first time I tried fresh pineapple. I remember someone asked me, if I would like a piece of pineapple. And I declined and I said, no, I, didn't, I don't want it. Because at to this point in my life, I had only ever had canned pineapple, which isn't great. It's just kind of okay. And someone said, you need to try this. It's really good. I said, have you ever had fresh pineapple? And I said, no, I've never had fresh pineapple, but I've had canned, how different could it possibly be? And I'm like, I'm not that hungry. I just don't care. And then they gave it to me. And uh, they basically said, if you just eat one piece, I'll leave you alone. And so I said, that sounds good. I like being left alone. So I took a piece of fresh pineapple and I bit into it. And I saw new colors because it's just so good. Uh, it was the most delicious thing I'd ever experienced, to which I said, I'll take the rest of that. Thank you very much. Uh, I was hungry for something. I didn't know it. I never had it. I didn't see it. It was nothing I had ever experienced before. I had no idea until I finally had a taste of how good it is. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. 
tonight. So we go over into Acts 13. We're starting in verse 13. Now, Paul has basically, Paul and Barnabas have made it known they want to go on a missionary journey. The people in their city have prayed for them and sent them off. And so now we're starting that journey. It says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, who's John? It's not John from the Gospel John that we just went through. This is John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now, what's going on here is Paul and Barnabas have been traveling together. Mark is Barnabas's nephew, and Mark goes back to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but we do know that this causes a rift later on between Saul or Paul and Barnabas. They figure that out later, but this is what's happening in the moment. Mark has left. Paul is pretty offended by this, and it causes a rift later on. This is verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law, the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So this is what's happening. They're going through their normal thing. On Sabbath day, they would gather together in the synagogues, and the rabbis would do a reading from both the law, from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and from the prophets. And they would do a reading. And then after that, if anyone was in the crowd that had experience and was able to speak, they would give them the ability to do that. Now, Paul was once a Pharisee before his conversion to Jesus. And I'm assuming this is his first missionary journey. People haven't quite figured out what's going on with Paul yet. He's still a reputable guy in Judaism because he was once a Pharisee and he sat on the Sanhedrin on the highest council of the Jewish leaders. And so Paul is a well-respected guy. His teacher was Gamaliel, who was an exalted rabbi. And so people are looking at Paul in the crowd going, please, I hope Paul has something to say. Because Paul, he's like, he's it. He's the guy, right? He's Billy Graham. To That's what we would say today. Although, I should say we would say that 20 years ago. Um, but Paul is there. And so they ask, if anyone has anything to add, anything to teach, Now's the time to do it. So Paul stood up, and I bet the crowd gasped because this is Paul. And motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So what he's doing is he stands up, he brings notice to himself, he's going to be preaching and teaching the synagogue. But he motions his hand and he says, you people of Israel and those of you who fear God. What he's doing is he's addressing everyone in the room. Because not everyone in the room is an Israelite. Some of them are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, um, but not completely, because they're not under the covenant law of circumcision. So they haven't completely converted. They're not naturally Jewish, but they ethically believe in Judaism and believe that Yahweh is the one true God. And so they're among there getting taught about the God they believe in. And so he's addressing the whole crowd. And he says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt 
and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Now, before we go any further, let's understand what we're dealing with right here. This is the Apostle Paul, right? This guy wrote most of the New Testament. He's the greatest evangelist who ever lived. And this is his first recorded sermon in biblical history. That's what you get to hear right now. Let's put this into perspective. And when he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, Samuel the prophet, uh, they asked for, afterward, they, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus. So what is Saul doing in his first sermon? Paul. Whatever you want to call him. Paul. His very first sermon, what he's doing is he's going through the history of the Israelite people. He's telling them something they hear week in and week out, and year in and year out. It's something they loved because what it did was it showed them, it reminded them how God was always there for them as they are the chosen people. And God had brought them through so much hardship. And so that's, what they, that's the angle they think Paul has taken on this, and they're enjoying it and soaking up the sermon and listening to everything he's saying. Going, yeah, that's right. God was there for us in the wilderness. God was there for us when we needed a king. He gave us King David and promised someone to come from his line to save us. But then he points out that the Savior is Jesus. So what is Paul really doing? He's telling the story that God has been telling forever starting with the fact that the, these people were chosen and they were brought out of Israel. And he's narrowing the criteria, which is exactly what the Old Testament does. It starts with Genesis 3, where is this open-ended promise to Eve that one day a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, it would bruise his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. It's this promise to Eve. Who is this descendant that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Who's going to be the one who crushes the symbol of sin? Who is going to save us from sin? Well, that gets narrowed as the Old Testament goes. Because we find out that Seth is the appointed one from Adam and Eve's line, that it's going to be through Seth's line. And then from Seth, ultimately, it leads to Noah. When the flood, he's the only one who makes it. After the flood from Noah, we get to Abraham, or Abraham is chosen out of everybody to be the person God is going to build a nation from and build a nation on. And from one of his descendants, all nations will be blessed. But we know the descendant's going to be through Abraham. And then we know it's Isaac, and then Jacob. And the story just gets narrower and narrower, and it gets all the way to David. And God promises David when he steps in as king of Israel, that he makes a covenant with him, that it will be one of his descendants that will sit on the throne forever. One of his descendants will be the Messiah. And the apostles all know 
that Jesus is that descendant of David. And what he's doing is he's narrowing the picture and narrowing the criteria so that you don't miss out on who the Messiah is when you see him. That's exactly what the Old Testament does. And so he says that God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, after John, meaning John the Baptist, had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So he goes from the history of the people of Israel, narrowing down who the Messiah is, pointing out that it's Jesus, to current events. He said, you remember John the Baptist, the guy who was beheaded not that long ago? You remember him? And everyone was wondering, who is this guy? And even people asked if he was the Messiah. And John's response to them was, no, I'm not. But I know who he is. And when he comes, I don't even deserve to tie that man's sandals. John was also the one who pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so Paul continues in his sermon. He says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So he says, Look, everything I told you, the history of our people led to this event. The history of our people led to Jesus, led to the cross, led to the resurrection. That's what it was pointing to. And now the message of salvation for you has been sent. I am here proclaiming salvation to you. Salvation is found in Jesus. Verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And he points out, Paul points out to the crowd, You know the story. You heard what happened in Jerusalem. All those people who looked to kill Jesus didn't realize that trying to get rid of him, all it did was fulfill all the prophecies about him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are his witnesses to the people? And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so he tells them about the resurrection. What you'll notice if you ever read through the book of Acts is that all the sermons that are preached always point to the resurrection because it's everything. It's the important event. It's the thing that separates Christianity. It's the thing that makes it real. Paul himself even writes in Scripture that if it didn't happen, we are to be the most pitied among everyone on earth. But Paul knows it happened because Paul saw the resurrected Jesus himself. Paul went from a persecutor of Christians who couldn't wait to crush Christianity and stop everyone who was saying that Jesus was alive to the greatest 
evangelist in Christian history because he saw the resurrected Jesus for himself. And he gave up his comfortable life as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, as a member of, member of a group that had a lot of wealth, a lot of respect, a lot of power, and a lot of comfort. And he gave all that up to get persecuted for the rest of his life, to get beaten and shipwrecked because he knew it was worth running the race for the God who was alive, for Jesus who was dead but is now alive. And he's telling them about this. He's saying, Jesus is risen from the dead. Many have seen it. I've seen it. We're telling you the truth. All of the prophecies have come to fruition. This is the Messiah. Now, verse 34, he says, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this. And he quotes the book of Isaiah. He says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so he points them back as he's telling them about the resurrection. He points them back to their very own scriptures that point out that Jesus is the Messiah, that the resurrection was meant to happen, and it happened in Jesus. because Jesus is the one. He says, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. Now, what he's doing here is he's drawing a difference between David and Jesus. He points out David, David, the most exalted king in all of Israel's history, the one that everyone points to as the example of what, great, of what a great king is, of what it means to be the one who serves God with all of your heart. He points to David and he says, even David died and was buried and stayed dead. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Jesus was raised from the dead because he lived a perfect life. And he is able to offer up a sacrifice because he has no sin to have caused that death. So he can take on our sin. Verse 38, Therefore let it be known to your brethren that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him... Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, here's the big statement. All of this is true. And for those who believe, you are justified. That means you are saved. Before God, you are justified. Meaning, when you stand before God, you are not measured by your sin, but by the righteousness of Jesus because you believe in him. So if you believe in him, you can be saved. And what he's doing is he's preaching to a room full of people who couldn't wait to hear him talk because he's the great respected Saul, member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. And he shocks them all with this revelation that that doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. All of the arrogance and the pomp and circumstance and all of the pressures we put on all of the people with the law and all the extra things we make them do to follow the Sabbath doesn't do you any good because the law doesn't bring you salvation. All the law does is show you that you're corrupt. You can look at the law like you look in a mirror. And when you look in the mirror in the morning, you can see that you have bedhead and your hair's out of whack. And you can see that it looks all over here or you need to put your makeup on 
or you need to splash your face and wash your face. You can see that you drooled down your chin when you look in the mirror in the morning. But looking in the mirror doesn't fix those things. You don't press, you don't press your face up against the mirror to comb your hair. You don't press your face up against the mirror to put your makeup on. All it does is show you the flaws that you can fix because you can see them. That's what the law does for you. The law just shows you that you can't stand before God blameless. So what do you do? The answer is Jesus. In his righteousness, we can be justified. Verse 40, it says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And now there's a warning. After all this good news, he gives them a warning. Verse 41, he says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were declare it, were to declare it to you. And so he's quoting the book of Habakkuk. Now, let's point this out because we watched that little video before the service about how church in America in modern times has become all about me. And we talked last week about how the institution, the temple, suppressed the truth and kept the truth from people. Um, Does that happen today? Well, let me ask you, how many sermons have you ever heard preached on the book of Habakkuk? Okay, truth hasn't been spoken. We will not do that here. We will go from Genesis to Revelation. We won't skip anything. You will hear it all. Because God's word says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. So we won't skip it. And here's, we'll get to it very soon in the Bible study. But Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, is about the fact that God is bringing judgment on Israel. Habakkuk is basically confused at why God has not brought judgment to Israel. Because of all the wickedness that he sees. And God says, I will bring judgment, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to kick them out of the land using the Babylonians. I'm actually going to take a people who are even more wicked than the Israelites, and I'm going to use them to kick them out of the land to show them that they should have been worshiping me this whole time. And so the warning here, if you understand the story from the book of Habakkuk, is that punishment does come for those who don't turn their hearts to God. You might not like that that's written there. You might like it to be sunshine and rainbows and happiness for everyone. But the truth is, if you don't turn your heart to God, punishment comes. And that's what Paul is saying here. So there's a warning. Yes, there's hope and there's glory and there's promise and there's a future of salvation. All you have to do is believe. It's a free gift to you. It costs God everything, but it's free to you. But if you reject it, recognize that you have to stand before God on your own two feet. You don't measure up against the law. If you don't measure up against the law, you don't have Jesus' righteousness covering you, then judgment comes. Verse 42. Paul has concluded his sermon. This is the reaction. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, 
the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. I don't know that I've ever heard about how important that verse is, but boy, is it ever important. I outlined it in pen today because that's really the focus of what we're talking about. The Gentiles begged for those words to be preached again. Why? They were hungry and they didn't even know it. It's like me with that pineapple or the marathon runners who don't think they need water and they make it to the 25th mile. Right? They've done everything they could possibly do on their own. They've used up all of their strength, but they haven't been fueled from the outside, so they can't make it to the end. And they drop dead of dehydration. They don't drop dead, but they drop down from dehydration. They need medical help. They don't get to finish the race because they didn't put something in that they needed to finish the race. And these people... Not the Jews, but the Gentiles that were there heard the words of Paul and thought, this tastes so good, I want the rest of it. They were hungry for it now because they got a taste. The truth is, all Scripture is God-breathed. And when you hear it, what you haven't heard before, and you find out the truth that God has blanketed through all of Scripture, that he's been pointing this story of Jesus from the very beginning of Genesis all the way up to the Gospels and through Revelation, that the story has been told. It's weaved together as one knit blanket, as one blanket together, one tapestry for us to look at in all of its beauty. And when you get to see it clearly, you taste it. And you realize, I've been missing something. I'm hungry, and I didn't even know it. Now, our church is named Come to Life Bible Church. We got our name because members of the Bible study where we got kicked off from had mentioned that for the first time in a lot of their lives, the Bible was coming to life to them. They were it was becoming new to them. They were understanding things that they had never seen or heard before. And so we named our church Come to Life Bible Church with the hope that we can bring the Bible to life to people. But not only that we bring the scriptures to life, but in doing so, they bring you life. Because when you hear the truth and you get that substance inside of you, it gives you the energy and strength to finish the race. Don't get dehydrated. Don't run out of energy. Get the energy, gather the strength from the word of God. That's what we do here. To go do the work that's meant to be done. Are you hungry for the word of God? Are you hungry for the lessons inside of scripture? For the things that point us to life instead of death? When these people heard it, they begged Last week, I talked about a really scary statistic that for the first time in American history, church attendance is a minority of the population. That hunger is being drained from us. Even scarier is that millennials and Gen Z, the generations that are taking over 
the world right now have a larger group of atheists than Christians. In fact, those who believe in no, have no faith, they're called nuns. They're the largest group of the population in millennials and Gen Z. I think that that's a product of the church acting like the temple in Josiah's time. We took God's word and we blanketed it some of it and we hid some of it. We didn't open it up. We didn't give people a taste of the fresh pineapple, right? We didn't give people a taste of how good it is and how much meat is actually in there, how much beauty is actually in there, how much authority God has in his word and how you can see its reality when you open it up and you see it for what's really in there. Instead, we covered it up. We just said, let's feel good about a few things. Let's talk about the same six topics every year. I really hope that we can see revival in this way, that we can see people begging to hear the word of God. Now, what we've experienced very interestingly as a church up to this point is that we've had someone reach out to us from Malawi, Africa, seeking to know more about the gospel and to spread it in his hometown. And we had people reach out to us from Korea asking for prayer from our church to pray for them as they go to spread the gospel in their area. And I'm so thankful and so proud of them for what they're doing. But boy, I hope that same energy exists here. And the hunger that maybe we didn't even know we had when we got a taste of it that we just want to share it with everyone else. It's so good, you can't not try this. Begging for the word of God to be preached. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, one week later, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Let me say that one more time, because I don't know if you heard it, because you should be gasping. The ne- one week later, almost the whole city came to hear Paul preach the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary for the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is telling the people, the Jews who are opposing his message that want to shut him down, When you're doing God's work, expect opposition, first of all. But secondly, the people who are opposing him, he quotes to them their very scriptures from Isaiah, saying, you forgot God commanded us to be a light to the Gentiles, and I'm doing it. Sorry if you don't want to, but I take God's word seriously. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. 
And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So how does it end? It ends with the word of God is now being preached throughout the whole region. People are hungry for the word of God. They experience intense opposition and persecution because they're doing God's work. And what do they do with the people who persecute them and reject them? They just shake the dust off their feet. It's no skin off my back. I told you what you needed to know, and I'm moving on. He doesn't fight with them. He doesn't hurt them. He just walks away. I gave you the truth. It's up to you to receive it. If you don't want to receive it, there are other people who do. Dust your feet. That's what Paul did. And it all ends with this. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is only possible if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. But the Spirit of God can do anything. And boy, do I hope and pray to see a hunger for God's Word again and for a revival to take place where people get a taste and say, this is so good, I have to share it with everybody else. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for Paul's work. God, I can't be Paul. I don't know if any of us can. But what we can do is receive your Holy Spirit and let him do what he wants to do through us. And God, I pray that we do that. I pray that we all lend ourselves open to you. I pray that we regain hunger and thirst for your word, for the truth, for the gospel, and to recognize it's so good we need to share it with everyone. You can't not taste this. It's too good. God, I pray that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.